Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. And we're back. Thanks again to Seth Rogen. He was cray-cray, but he had to run. Also, don't forget, later, Father John Misty plays with our band. But right now, a big hand for a very special guest, recently discovered living in the Marshall Islands, Amelia Earhart. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'd like to begin by saying that, as a woman, I never accepted any limits on what I could do. That is terrific, A.E., but first, we like to play party games to loosen up here. Games can be fun. When I was shipwrecked, we would sometimes put scorpions in a hole and make up stories about them. To pass the time. (laughs) All right, this game is called Ariana Grande Title, or one of your radio distress calls. Oh, I don't think I'll be very good at that. Well, if you screw up, you can always disappear again. All right, let's start the game. Problem. Oh, that would be my radio distress call. No, that's an Ariana song. It's the one with Iggy Azalea. I don't know that plant. (laughs) All right, let's try another one. Side to side. Well, the plane was doing that, but I'm going to say Ariana. That is the right answer. Great. All right, how about Mayday? I said that like a million times. That's the right answer. Okay, you're on a roll. How about one last time? Right before I hit the water... I'm pretty sure I said that. Oh, no, that's Ariana Grande. All right, next one. How about request approach instructions? I'm getting exhausted and famished. You don't have some roast sea turtle in rainwater, do you? Last one. Love me harder. Oh, I love that song. Because if you want to keep me, you gotta, 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 gotta love me harder. Wow. You amaze me, Amelia. I I can't even... Speak uh, a hand, everybody, for Amelia Earhart. Aren't we going to talk about aviation and women's empowerment? Not so much. When we come back, John Goodman and Channing Tatum try to take off each other's pants. And now he's letting the president use his Airbnb in Hamburg, Colin McEnroe. It's actually not even really technically in Hamburg, but it's, you know, if you get, if you hit the 431 at the right time when the traffic's the right way, you get into Hamburg pretty fast. I think he'll be very happy with it. And, uh, it's a uh, kind of a, you know, um, kind of convertible bed, but he'll be fine. Um, all right. He didn't have a hotel. You know, I wanted to help out yeah. any way that I could. So anyway, yes, you just heard, uh, I, I, we just heard Betsy Kaplan as, as Amelia Earhart sing an Ariana Grande show, a song. I feel like we've entertained you enough. We could just sort of <laughs> play some dead air for the rest of the show, but we won't. Uh, joining us in studio is uh, James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio in Tr- at Trinity College. Uh, Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, choreographer, director of Kinetic Dance, and so much more. Uh, and Irene Papoulis, lecturer in the Alan K. Smith Center for Writing and Rhetoric at Trinity College. Um, we're going to talk today about the movie Baby Driver. We are going to talk about Amelia Earhart, uh, and we'll have some other topics as well, time permitting, as we like to say. Uh, but we are indeed going to begin with Baby Driver. Uh, it is a, a spanking new movie with a lot of critical hype and box office buzz. Uh, it tells the story uh, of a, a young man who has been basically 
coerced into becoming a getaway driver. But he ha he has amazing skills. Uh, some of them have to do with the uh, sort of retro music playlist that he listens to on his earbuds. Uh, and without further ado, let's just uh, hear a clip from the film. This is uh, uh, Doc, uh, sort of a master, criminal mastermind played by Kevin Spacey, giving instructions to his team in preparation for the next heist. You're going to hear Jamie Foxx's bats objecting to Baby. That is Ansel Elgort, the title character, listening to the aforementioned music through the aforementioned earbuds. Start in the AM. Questions. I got a question, Doc. Why would I believe phones over here heard a goddamn word you said? You lay down your whole play. He ain't even listening. Baby. The target is an armored truck at Perimeter Trust in Dunwoody, 10 a.m. sharp. We have the details of the route because someone at the depot has a nasal problem. The bank itself is right near the Buford Highway, so we should be able to hit the ramp within 60 seconds again now. We also have a diversion crew. They're going to blow up a bread truck a ways away, keep the fuzz busy. The dress code is the Michael Myers Halloween mask, but don't all buy your mask at the same time. It looks suspicious. The switch car is ready, but you want me to hit the long state parking structure at Hartsfield Jackson to get a heist vehicle that stays colder longer, boost a commuter car, a family car, something that blends in well with morning traffic. Something on the heavy side, in case we need to ram the cops off the road to Escalade, Yukon, Avalanche, whatever. It needs to be ready for an 8.30 start in the AM. Questions? Well, ain't y'all cute? That's my baby. All right. So the hook there is that uh, this young man has had earbuds in the entire time listening to that music, appearing not to hear anything that has been said. Uh, but in fact, Baby lives in a different world. This is the latest film with the director, Edgar Wright. He's probably best known for a comedic trilogy of films, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. Uh, this is a different kind of movie for him, kind of a breakout movie, both as a movie set in Atlanta rather than England, uh, but also a movie with Probably a much more stellar group of actors. John Hamm uh, is a, yet another one of the villains. Um, so um, I don't know. Irene, maybe you can get us started. I, I might just go around the table and just get your sort of first impressions of, of this movie. Well, you know, the, the, um, the clip that you played is in a way encapsulates uh, something in my reaction in the sense that it's like a fantasy for this um, guy, you know, the, it's, there's such a great fantasy that you're just sitting there being quiet and not doing anything, but really you have the answers and you have the knowledge and you're deeper than anyone else and you're taking it all in. And so on so many other levels, it's sort of a fantasy about this guy, this young man who has had a lot of problems and everything, but he has this amazing skill, you know, and so I, I'm just uh, noticing that and I ha I, I'm res sort of resisting it in some ways, but we'll get into that later. That's a very Papulian interpretation. <laughs> I, mean, I think you just, you brought a lot of yourself to that, right? I mean, right? Because yeah. you have a stillness and yet you, I know you well enough over many years to know that. And in fact, you do believe that about yourself. All right, yourself, it's my right? fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to call you out on that, but it just, it's such an opportunity, too. I feel like, you know, all right. So, uh, You're one of the top critics now on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. Yeah. I, I, did I already mention this? 97% rating on, uh, on uh, Hot Tomato among critics. Um, and spoiler, as we go around the table, I, nobody here is going to be giving it anything like a, a 97, probably. Um, although, James, I kind of, you know, when I initially, initially thought about this panel, I thought, 
partly because this movie is, in many respects, a pastiche of certain kinds of cinematic style and homage to certain kinds of directors, ranging from Tarantino to French New Wave directors. I thought, well, cineast that you are, you know, maybe this will do something for you. Well, actually, when I first read about it and when I first heard about it, I, 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 I was having a good reaction, actually, and I, I, I am very – I did my usual approach, which was to avoid reading any reviews because I really wanted to just see what it was like. And I, I really went into it thinking that it might have those sort of hooks that made it satisfying to me, but I just found it glib and shallow, really, that f it, it ended up being full of artifice that didn't really lead anywhere. And I think that one of the things that may have happened here is that you've taken a filmmaker who's very good at making some sort of like narrowly focused film that he had done in the past and a large company has come along with a large budget and has blown it up and ha he's used the same techniques and the same sort of hooks to me that are in Shaun of the Dead and his other films that, that, that don't really play in this film. And it combines it with a kind of undercurrent, I think, that makes me uncomfortable about racism and violence and the, the, the stereotypical characters in the film. And I found myself, as the film went on, being more and more detached from it for that reason. And um, it, it, it was a classic example, of, for me, of, of sort of having expectations based on a previous film that just didn't play out for, for all of those reasons. And I just cannot, I, I went afterwards to read some of these reviews with this massive sort of outpouring of, 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 of praise that they got from a lot of critics. And I just felt, you know, where did they see this film? You know, yeah. did, w mm -hmm. they didn't see, it seemed like they almost didn't see the same film. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, Carolyn, I think another thing about this film, and Carolyn comes at this movie with fresh eyes because she always waits till like the 10 o'clock show and the Thursday night before the, the Friday news <laughs> before she sees the movie. Um, <laughs> and, and one thing that I, I've thought about subsequently is so Ansel Elgort is this young guy who's been in like at least one sort of teen rom-com kind of movie. He's got a few other credits as well. He was, I guess, being considered to, to play the young Han Solo at one point you know, in the Star Wars reboots and remakes and stuff like that. I think that really would have been a disastrous choice. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the odd things about this is, I mean, some of this, are, are, some of it's the dictates of the role, but this is a very uncharismatic, unprepossessing performance by a young man who doesn't really show any signs of concealing, you know, some other tremendous incendiary acting talent. Yeah, those were a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, I, I, this movie kind of bored me to tears. Um, at, at one point, I, I was like halfway through and I, I just, I found myself tempted to like Google the ending and just leave. That was where I was at with this. Um while you were in the theater. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I was like, you know out, what? As a nose panelist, you've taken a vow. Uh, <laughs> you, you actually cannot do those things. <laughs> Good to know. But I suffered. I think you've forgotten the initiation ceremony already. <laughs> I suffered through. Um, I, so the first 10 minutes was what I expected it to be. Like it had this like action. There was, you know, some actual driving, yeah. like stunt driving. And so I, you like action in general? I mean, like, no, I, I, I would have preferred action more action, you know, mm -hmm. something. I would have preferred something. The thing that really, the, the thing that I found redeeming with this movie was the soundtrack. And I kept thinking how 
uh, you know, back in the day when you would buy CDs of a soundtrack of a movie, like this movie came out too late because I would have bought this soundtrack. Mm. I would have, you know, gone to Tower Records and gotten this this CD box set from this movie. And I thought it was really intriguing how they uh, paired everything. Like the, it was just a very choreographed film and how it paired with the music. And I was fascinated with that element of it. And I, I thought that that was really cool. But I, I hated... Uh, most of it. And and the character, I just found him so, I, I almost want to say like melodramatic, uh, the main character, Baby. I just, I, I, I didn't like, and, and the girl, the waitress, Deborah, was even worse. Like, right. So Lily James uh, plays the wait- waitress Deborah or Debbie. Um, she is probably best known as Lady Rose from Downton Abbey, but also Cinderella. Uh, and she's in a really terrible movie right now uh, called The Exception uh, with Christopher Plummer. Do not go see that movie. Um, and, and, and so I don't know. I mean, I want to go back to some of this st- stuff about sort of race and sex and stuff like that, Irene. Um, I, I, one thing that was sort of brought up in the emails, too, is, I mean, she's – essentially the lone significant female character in this movie, unless you count John Hamm's uh, oversexed uh, partner, um, and who's darling, that's her name. Um, <laughs> and, and so in a way she has to, if there's sort of a female point of view in this movie, she's the one who has to carry it. I mean, and yeah. she can't. I mean, she, she, she she's not allowed to. But she's just there to be beautiful and adoring and to go along with him and to want to run away with him at all, you know, and just like whatever you want, baby, you know. And so so it's a very much a male point of view movie and not only a male point of view movie, but a white male point of view movie, it seems it seems to me. And so the racist undertones, you know, the bad guys are the the black guy and the, and the Latina woman and, you know, they're, they're, and John Hamm mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Kevin Spacey and Kevin Spacey. But you don't get any any criticism, I feel. You know, there, there, it was just like, oh, those are the bad guys. You have to be careful of them. They're dangerous. They might seem like they have a heart, but really they're, they don't because they're, they're, they're evil, you know. And so this sort of white guy good, bad guys evil is just absurdly um, uh, wrong. Well, well, I think, yeah, well, James, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, that that's one of the core issues of this kind of film. It's not just this film. It's kind of like the sense that, you know, I don't know how much um, Edgar Wright really, I don't know, it seemed like he wasn't engaged with that those issues at all yeah. in the film. And I wonder how much it's like, like Hollywood producers, uh, you know, who... Uh, and the casting director, you know, I mean, did he have control of the casting director? And so uh, you end up with this situation where you've got uh, stereotypical villains. You've also got in Jamie Foxx a really great actor mm-hmm. who's playing a throwaway role to mm-hmm. me. You know, uh, like although I real, think he does something he with does that. A great like, job. I just I'm riveted. He, he when does I'm a great him. job, but I find you know why is he not in in the lead in a film again yeah. where he's really showing his talents. And, and why isn't there more to the story of him? Even if he were, that, were, hadn't absolutely. been in the lead, yeah. yeah. I mean, he has a name like Bats. You know, okay, so he's crazy. Yeah. You know, you he's an angry guy. You know, all of these stereotypes. Somebody you fear and stuff. And they they're, they're sort of token things thrown in uh, about you know that that okay, it, it it the race the race of various other characters in the film doesn't necessarily fit in this pattern. As if they suddenly looked at the rushes on the film and they realized, wait a minute, we've got a really we got a problem here, um, and I I can't see that those things in 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 Hollywood's m- mainstream films these sort of 
films that are really coming out. Incidentally, I noticed it came out through TriStar, which is kind of like Sony's like like action sort of like they put films in there that they've acquired that they haven't really you know they haven't originated with them, and so I think that was a clue maybe at the beginning. But it seemed like the director was out of his depth in really raising issues uh, 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 that, that he didn't go anywhere with. And he ended up with a stereotypical uh, undertone of racism and, and, and the depiction of women, as you point out. You yeah, know, the it's sexism like, like, like sexism is like, it's like, what happened in the last 10 years? <laughs> right. You know, it's like uh, as it's if funny. the retro, yeah. it, being retro about sexism is, is somehow funny now. Put it yeah. to music and make people sort of sink to the music and it'll be okay. Well, yeah. so I, the whole thing, I felt like, like I said, that it, if this had come out like 15 years ago or 20 years ago, would we have perceived this differently? Would it have a yeah. different excitement because of the music and because we aren't, we might not have been as like hyper aware or, you know, reading into things as, you know, I think 20 years ago, a lot of, there wasn't as much talk about sexism or racism in film. I mean, it would have, it was um, there, but. Or 35 yeah. years ago, maybe. Yeah. But, you and, know, and maybe I mean, just to sort of um, help people understand, and this is not a, we are going to avoid spoilers here. Uh, and so this is not a spoiler. But uh, the first uh, gang of bank robbers that you're introduced to uh, does feature John Hamm, the underutilized John Bernthal, uh, and this uh, lovely Latina woman who's just been sort of the whole movie making out with John Hamm, basically. Um, and, and they have sort of your typical bank robber ethos, get in, get out, blah, blah, blah. The next set of bank robbers, and so Kevin Spacey sort of picks who the bank robbers are going to be and then makes this young man do the, the, the getaway driving. The next group is basically led by Jimmy Fox, and, and they're all kind of people of color to a certain degree, I think. It's kind of hard entirely to tell. And they're not as nice. I mean, they're bloodthirsty. They think nothing of wasting uh, an armored car guard, whether they need to or not. Uh, I, I think that's the the valence you guys are citing have, here, right? They don't There's, have any more moral. You know, I was thinking yeah. that Jamie, what if Jamie Foxx had played the Kevin Spacey role? You know, because he had he had more nuance than right. the than the villain, than the stereotypical villains. Right. You know, but I think that that's an example of the thinking of blowing up a small budget film into a big one. They said, no, no, Kevin Spacey is the one who has to be right. that guy. Jamie Foxx is not going to do it because you ruin the demographic. And that's this conventional thinking behind this that, you know, it sneaks up as being a film that is somehow um, knowing and and like like fun retro kind of thing. But it's really very retro, seriously retro in a bad way. But what I still cannot understand why. I mean, these critics who are so enthusiastic about this film, <laughs> they see a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Were they something happened that sort of critic warp? They're looking at the technique, <laughs> supposedly, you know, Maybe. and they think there's something about the technique and the nods to certain things. Well, Carolyn, I was just wondering, as somebody who makes some of her uh, living in comedy, I mean, we think of this particular director, we associate him with things that are, m for the most part, more openly comedic. Uh, you're right, it's mostly done that kind of thing. This movie is occasionally funny. There's a funny scene in a bank with a kid. This kid, as a character, kind of just appears out of nowhere and then disappears. But, I mean, it is that is sort of a funny moment. I could cite two or three other scenes. I, I wondered whether it worked at all. I mean, you were saying, what kind of movie is this? What kind of movie am I seeing? Yeah, Did I, it work as a comedy? Not for me at all. Uh, that's I, exactly how I felt about this movie. I went into it thinking it was going to be just kind of this like fast paced action, but it just, it wasn't, and it wasn't funny, but it didn't have like some 
you know, surprise twist or drama. There was not, there was never this moment where I felt like I knew exactly what I was watching, mm-hmm. like what genre well, I would. Can I say something about the psychology? I mean, yeah. you know, because I always watch movies. You know, whenever people talk about movies, I think it's interesting to say, what is it that you value? You know, and so I always think, like, what is the emotional reality of the characters, even if it's a movie that's not supposed to be psychologically deep or anything like that? And what what psychological message comes across? And so it made me actually compare it to Manchester by the Sea in, in a certain way, because it's sort oh, of another idea, one of my favorites. The <laughs> idea that, um, you know, of, of, of the backstory of that explains the psychology of someone, you know, so he had sort of a backstory that made him, you know, that made him boxed in. So it's almost like he had no choice because he had this past backstory. And that that which is also what happened in Manchester by the Sea, but it sort of excuses him, you know, it's sort of like now we understand and we don't have to we don't he he has no choice. So it's just he's just sort of a, a victim of the circumstances, you know, and I think that kind of story, it made me think, when women have backstories, they always want to change it. You know, like I have this yeah, situation, right. <laughs> but exactly. what can I do to, to transcend it and to do yeah. something different? Whereas if even in Manchester by the Sea also, it's like, well, well you know, what can it. he do? Yep. This is it. Yeah. You know, this just explains <laughs> it. There's nothing That's we can do. That's very good. I like so that. Why men, that are, men are falling behind in this society. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I, I said the same thing before we went on the air, James, that one of my problems with this movie is that every emotional characteristic uh, or every psychological characteristic and every moral issue in this movie is a Asserted rather than earned, you know. I mean, it yeah. goes back to the old show don't tell thing. But you know, how do you know somebody's bad or or stuck or good or you know why or how do you know why somebody's uh, about to do something because they just tell you. Well, and it, that blurs any sense of understanding what real character is. It's like just throwing throwing it out there, and so it 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 really creates to me. And also a, a kind of creepy background as well to the violence in the movie is given the current political atmosphere. There's a sort of th- threat amongst uh, in the air kind of thing about, uh, oh, it's OK to be violent. You know, yes. It's OK mm-hmm. to to have a violent reaction because and the because is something that is amorphous and distant and not, you know, it's like a justification that's there. And I think in a film, especially if you're playing with all of these things about, you know, well, OK, he's a justified character because he's forced into this. And the women are, by by extension, therefore, you know, that their role is also in this film and they're also delineated in a certain way. And then you introduce all of this ultraviolence that takes place in the movie. It's absolutely not funny. I mean, I totally agree with, with Carolyn that it's, it's not, you know, there is no humor in that really. And that's the creepy feeling that, I mean, you talked about saying you wanted to Google the Indian leave. I had to say, I, with the audience I was sitting with, I had the feeling that there were some people wanted to leave. Mm. I've had a a strange sort of sense that this movie was not making people happy uh, and and some of them maybe did come to see it as a humorous movie, and it, it isn't. Actually, I walked out of the movie theater. I, I Facebooked about this, but I walked out of the movie theater uh, behind three people walking out. This is in Bloomfield, uh, and one of the three, they were all adults, and one of the adults said to the other two adults, uh, it seemed like a, a lot of really great car chases set to a lot of really great music and nominal justification for the aforementioned. And I actually said to him, I don't really hear in the movie in multiplex lobbies nominal justification for the aforementioned very often, so I may steal that. And so I'm stealing it right now. I, I do want to say, you know, apropos of the soundtrack, I, I, 
you know, I mean, Edgar Wright is somebody who's really come in recently for a lot of worship among people who like this kind of movie. People are very excited about him and what he's done with his soundtrack. To me, this is like the most unoriginal idea I've seen in a long time. I mean, just think about this for a second. This is a story of a young man whose dead mother inculcated in him a love of retro music. Uh, leading to a series of mixtapes and playlists without which he feels he cannot function. That's exactly the trope of Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, <laughs> it is indistinct. What I just said could be could apply perfectly perfectly to either one of these movies. Now you know why TriStar bought it. <laughs> yeah, and I just sort of feel like, well, geez, would it kill you to get an original idea here? Because this really is a pretty you know well established concept somewhere else, mm-hmm. uh, and it's where where it's. I mean, I think it's done very well in this movie, and I think it's very, done very well in Guardians too. But I mean, you know, I actually, express love for your mother if she's dead. Too, you know. I mean, there's something about that. Yeah, my mo- simplifies yeah. things. Yeah. Right? My mother's playlist is like "Hello Dolly" and uh, <laughs> "Everybody Loves Somebody Sometimes." So that's not how I express love for my mother. We do have to take a break right now. We're going to head west on 20 in a car we can't afford with no plan or whatever it is you're supposed to do. We'll be back after this. <laughs> We are indeed back with James Hanley, Carolyn Payne, and Irene Papoulos here on The Nose. Uh, we're leaving behind us Baby Driver, uh, and we're heading up uh, from the road to the sky with Amelia Earhart. Um, her plane disappeared from said sky during her 1937 attempt to be the first woman to fly around the world. She was never found. Or was she? Um, the History Channel, which, let's be honest, the History Channel has now become kind of Spurious. Um, but the History Channel, at least, uh, not at all in search of great ratings, uh, is uh, <laughs> at least touting the idea that there's a photo that has been uncovered uh, from, I think, Naval Archives. Uh, it's a picture of people on a dock in the Marshall Islands. Uh, one person who basically has her back more or less to the camera might be Amelia Earhart. Another person with a receding hairline might be her navigator, Fred Noonan. Uh, this, uh, I, you know, I, I think all of us here on the panel are less interested in this particular set of claims and more interested in the way Amelia Earhart has become myth. I mean, myth in a really good way, you know, myth in a way that I was sort of astonished as we started emailing around about this. I like how many of you, and Carolyn, I'll start with you, but how many of you have, I, I, Amelia Earhart to me is, you know, I, I, well, I was just amazed how lived this myth is for you. Uh, yeah. yeah um, so Amelia Earhart was my childhood hero, like my superhero. And I admitted as when I was about seven, I spent a year dressing like her. I wore a bomber jacket and an aviator hat every day to school in second grade. Um do you remember how you found out about her? Yeah. So my uh, my great aunt was, uh, for her 60th birthday, she bought herself flying lessons. And this was a woman who kind of, she lived this very free lifestyle and did lots of cool things in her life. But for her 60th birthday, she bought herself flying lessons, fell in love with her flight instructor, who was a World War II veteran, and they ended up getting married. And they had a plane, and they would fly all around in the plane and come up and visit us in Boston and take us up in their plane. And um, so I think that that was part of it for me, just the idea of, um, and my my great aunt was incredibly inspired by 
um, by Amelia Earhart and would talk about her a lot. And so I think that that, that got me. And uh, I just thought she was such a cool woman that she could do anything. And she did things that women didn't do at the time. And um, I was like a, I was a little raging playground feminist. Uh, one time a boy said like, boys, you know, girls can't do everything that boys can and you can't pee standing up. And I literally pulled down my pants <laughs> you were and so the wrong person on the playground. <laughs> so, um, Amelia Earhart really spoke to me on this like spirit animal level. So, uh, you know, I've been fascinated with her and, and, uh, have read, have been following for years, and I was so thrilled when, you know, Hillary Clinton said that that was her childhood hero, and um, so, yeah, I, I'm just fascinated by the whole legend and, like, what happened to her and the idea that maybe she came back to America and went on living as someone else. Like, all of these theories just kind of always, like, tickle my my fancy to kind of think what really happened. Although, Irene, I mean, probably she crashed, and I just wonder about... <laughs> no! Uh, d- 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 no! <laughs> I mean, you know, horses, not zebras, right? <laughs> Chances are she crashed. Yeah. And, and, I mean, when you think about that and then everything that Carolyn said, which I thought was very heartfelt and very real, but there's something a little sad about that, too, that the, the maybe the the shortage of uh, of icons of this kind means that so many young women have to gravitate towards such a sad story. Oh, okay, yeah, absolutely. And that's why we want her to be alive, you know. So I think there is something. I, I, I wouldn't want to dismiss too fast the idea that, really, she didn't crash and she's, she's sitting there on a dock looking out with her back to the camera. And, you know, I mean, I think that's that's a that could really that's a that's a wonderful. We have those fantasies about, you know, it's like when someone dies, all you want is to find out, no, it was a mistake. They're really alive, you know, and that's true for for public figures as well as. Um, regular people. And so I think the thought that there's a secret because she actually lived and she's been, you know, is 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 a wonderful fantasy. And especially because she is that, you know, I think it's interesting how there's sort of a strain of, you know, those women, you know, and it was interesting to find out, I found out in an article that her, she had Quaker, um, you know, her grandmother was Quaker or something like that. And it reminded me of my own mother's tradition of sort of these women that are sort of like, well, it's sort of like the Catherine Hepburn type of woman, you know, like, well, I can do it myself and I can wear trousers if I want to. (laughs) And, you know, I'm going to go out there and have fun. I'm going to embrace life. I'm going to have wild, wild adventures and sex and all that, you know, and it's a very, in it's women who, who live in a relatively circumscribed situation, you know, it's like you're not allowed to be too wild. You have to sort of know how to play by certain rules, but within those rules, especially if you have a certain amount of privilege, you're allowed to be flamboyant and wild, and she so much represents that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the word you used there was allowed was a kind of interesting thing. I I sort of, it could be just uh, wishful thinking, but I always thought from looking at pictures of her and reading about her and reading the story of her life that um, she didn't live in that universe where being allowed was part of the part of the scenario in other words she i mean you look at pictures of her and to me she radiates a charisma that is beyond being allowed to do anything and she decided to do something and whether she survived or not it, it, it her charisma has lived on and obviously as an inspiration to lots of people but also i think that it 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 
has this story has an ability to keep on being resurrected for one reason or another. And now the resurrection of the story is about a picture that is a sort of mysterious picture that can't be explained otherwise and seems to have been mislabeled in the archives. You know, I mean, it's it's a mysterious and alluring story in itself. But what is fascinating to me is the power behind it is her, is her personality and who she was and, and the fact that she really represented something very revolutionary. And I think that it goes to the heart of things that are happening now. You know, who, where, where, what exactly does it mean about control? Who controls things? Who is in power? And where is it that women stand in that place now? Are women really, you know, it's, it's not as if, you know, men have to be asked to give women the power, as it were. It's like not needing to ask that question, not being allowed to do anything. And that, to me, is what is really exciting about her. I, I have to say that I knew relatively little about Amelia Earhart prior to getting ready for this particular segment. <laughs> and so, I mean, as I read, it was fascinating to, to me that on the one hand, I think, you know, in much the way that, that you've all just said, and particularly what you've said, Irene, you know, she was a person who, in order to be a self-actualized woman in the 1930s, she essentially had to cut her ties to almost everything and to say, look, I, I, the only way that I, this can be done is if I just insist on being myself and, and, and not salute any particular flag. That stands in dynamic tension with the um, unusual relationship she had with her husband. I circulated to, she got married in Noang, Connecticut, first of all. That's where her, she married a, um, one of the scions of the Putnam Publishing uh, family. His mother had a house in Noank. Uh, the wedding was uh, put on and off several times. She was very ambivalent about getting married. Um, and uh, she uh, did give, serve him on the actual wedding day with a typewritten letter explaining what she expected and what she didn't expect. One of the things she said was that she didn't expect to have to be faithful you know, conventionally. In the medieval uh, tradition of being faithful, she called it, uh, to him, uh, nor did she, she expect that from him. Uh, and she went on, this wasn't in the part that I sent to you, but it'll be much easier if we, you know, we'll be able to get through attractions that we have to other people. But And said other remarkable things about how she saw marriage as kind of limiting. But the other reality of her relationship with her husband, George Putnam, was that he was the, in some ways – the opposite of everything I, that I just said. He was constantly telling her like how to smile so that it covered up the uh, uh, the gap in her front teeth and she the, her hats were a disaster and a threat to Western civilization and this and that. That's because, funny. You can have yeah. sex with other people, but you can't wear that hat. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, but I think he was trying to help her monetize herself. He had been very successful with Lindbergh and he thought she was you know, she could be, among other things, a huge commercial sensation and wanted to help her be that. But it was interesting. It, like their relationship was complicated. It was uh, in many respects, she was this person who broke away from every mold of, you know, 1930s femininity. On the other hand, she had this guy who was st still a little bit of a Svengali. Yeah. So that's what I mean. You know, being, 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 she's not as free, maybe as she, she wasn't as free as she claimed to be if, if he was always, you know, providing the money and the situation and the life and all that, you know, it's sort of, but it's a fantasy. That's why she, as a fantasy though, inspired so many people like my mother and like Carol, <laughs> Carolyn, you know, and so in a way, the fan maybe the fantasy is the fantasy more important, you know, that the ideal of a woman who can do what really do whatever she wants in the world and just say, I if, the, if I don't like the rules, I'm going to break them. Period. You I, know, that's a great fantasy. I feel she and would have cautioned you not to pee in the playground the way yeah. that you did. I think. I, I yeah. think she would have 
appreciated that, honestly. I guess we'll never know. Maybe the History Channel has some information about that, too. Although, James, just to go back to the History Channel thing, the one thing that I would say about this is to believe any of this, you have to believe that someone took a picture of a woman who really was front page news, you know, uh, and at a time when everybody wanted to know what happened to her and then did nothing with it or about it? Well, that really is, uh, that to me is the really strange and mysterious part that uh, I I think is not really quite answered by this. I mean, her uh, disappearance wasn't something that, uh, I mean, as far as I can tell, the actual, the, 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 Attempt to find her, the attempt to actually, you know, make a serious discovery about her didn't come till much later. That at the time, it was like curious that she wasn't like, like it's, it's like, OK, the, the, she's disappeared. That was the end of the story. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess that's there's always been that speculation of like government cover ups and everything. and Or just not interest. And, or, yeah. Um, but or, I, or Japanese prisoner, at which point maybe they don't want to. Right, which is yeah. one of the yeah. one of the options that they're looking at now with the photo. I think the document. I'm definitely planning on watching it, obviously, and I, I think it'll, I think it, it'll be interesting. Uh, there's already like if you Google it, you can read different. They have you know different theories, and I think it it probably is what's covered in the documentary. Yes, the, the the great great Amelia Earhart movie is still to come. I don't know who should play that role or how they should do it, but. The, the one that gets at all the stuff we're talking about right now. I, I don't think it exists yet. All right. Yeah. We have to quickly switch gears, but not all the way switch gears. So we know that Amelia Earhart felt comfortable in breaking many kinds of conventions uh, in, her, uh, in her relationships with men, in her uh, choice of fashion, in her choice of hairstyle, cut her hair kind of short, still looks fantastic. Uh, well, you would think that, in fact, we had evolved, but now we're going back to the baby driver question. You know, I mean, have we evolved at all? A CBS report was stopped from entering the Speaker's lobby here in the Capitol, in, there in the Capitol, where journalists uh, wait to speak to members of Congress because their shoulders were bare. There has long been a dress policy that applies to lawmakers, their staff, and journalists that requires men to wear jackets and ties. Women can't wear sleeveless tops, sneakers, or open-toed shoes. Um, it's not consistently enforced, we're told. So... Um, Oh, so I don't know. Well, actually, Irene, you were the one who guided us to this. There's a great Robin Given piece about this. I worship Robin Given. What did you make of it? Well, you know, I think it, I, I'm, I was a little torn at first because I think, you know, I sort of like the idea of dress codes in some ways and in some con- t- contexts. And, you know, the men have a dress code, too. The men couldn't wear a sleeveless shirt either, mm-hmm. really, if a man wanted to walk in with a sleeveless shirt. Um, and so there's that level of I mean, of that's it. kind of an unfair – like, men's sleeveless shirts, though, are just – I mean, maybe it's because we don't see them and maybe they should be allowed more. But, like, <laughs> I mean, if Colin walked in in, like – I'm just picturing like a sleeveless version of the shirt he's wearing, like a dress shirt that just didn't have sleeves. You'd be like, what are you doing today, I don't, I don't think you want to see Mitch McConnell in a white <laughs> theater, if that's what you're suggesting. But, um. but, but, um, but at the same time, it's the things that are, that are, that are uh, criticized, you know, like showing your arms, showing your feet, or, your t- you know, they're not allowed to have open-toed shoes. Uh, and also that they're going to enforce it for these reporters who come in and they're wearing whatever, and it's like 98 degrees in Washington. And you know why? You know what? What about the male reporters? I wonder. Yeah. I didn't see anything about that. Like, are they allowed to? They don't probably don't have to wear jackets, or do they? And you know, it's just this sort of prudery that 
is associated, supposedly um, Paul Ryan was the one that says we should enforce it because they didn't actually enforce it all the time. So it's just another example of you know trying to put women in a certain box and you're not allowed to wear this. See, I thought uh, Robin Givens' piece is terrific, James. Yeah. And, and, and at the end, she goes through this whole thing about how what really happened was that everything collapsed, you know, that there are these tiny little French Foreign Legion outposts of formality. But you know, she, she says, uh, along came Casual Fridays, Silicon Valley, telecommuting, the gig economy, Business attire as a mutually agreed upon aesthetic began to disintegrate. The fashion industry declared there were no rules. Moguls began dressing like 12-year-olds. Women embraced the comfort and ease of leggings. Individuality bloomed. People began wearing pajamas on the street with designer slippers. We accepted this as normal. It's not that people have forgotten what's appropriate. They know. They simply choose to ignore it. They refuse to be appropriate. And they feel entitled to their refusal. They see it as a sign of freedom, liberation, and personal identity. Hypnos. When somebody announced, someone announced that an event is business attire. People know exactly what that means. Suit and tie, modest dress, nice trousers. But they still spend significant time fretting about how they might get around what they know to be correct. Now, she goes on to say, you know, the, the, the thing that's being cited here about bare shoulders in the Capitol is a dumb rule. But it, it's also like one of the last rules that anybody can think of to have. And, and I sort of you know, I mean, the three soldiers who got the French Foreign Legion Award for disrupting the terrorists on the train wore khakis and polo shirts. And I just sort of thought, hey, you're getting a medal from the president of France. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Put on something nice. I don't know. I, I, to me, all of those rules are ultimately, when they're enforced, they're penny ante power and, power and control by people who want to who have a hidden agenda of some time i mean some kind i think that that the whole idea of dress codes is is linked to that i think that if you have a certain sense of how you present yourself some people have a sense of how to dress and they look good no matter what they do they they find some way of looking stylish and there are other people who always get it wrong and that's always <laughs> going to be the case i don't think it's ever going to change but if you start introducing rules and saying well you know bare shoulders are not okay the, the that rule suddenly gets enforced for another reason and it'll be because though too many women reporters or there's too many outspoken reporters. You know, it's always some sort of hidden agenda. I don't think, you know, it, there's a sort of um, kind of a, a vague satisfaction in saying, well, couldn't we all look nice for the wedding kind of thing? Or couldn't we look nice if we're going to... Uh, People go to like fu- you know, funeral home calling hours in cargo shorts. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, if people, that's a, that's a sort of personal thing that you can't really control. And I, I mean, I... I sent this article, I, I said this in the email, to my mother because recently we had to go to a funeral and I wore a sleeveless dress and she would not let that drop. She thought that that was just <laughs> inappropriate and, you know, tacky and gauche and, you know, it was like 90 degrees out. Yeah, I mean, in a situation like that, isn't that more about your mother and her own discomfort? About yeah. Control? Right, the, the, producers I mean, w- the producers want us to take a break. They are correct. We have to do that if, in order to have time to endorse and to change our clothes. So we'll be back. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from Tim Cohn. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jamie Foxx. 
On Monday's show, hear news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. All right. It's time for our excellent panel to make some recommendations, uh, some things that uh, you might enjoy in your own life. Irene Papoulos, right. what have you got for us? I just have one thing. I don't know if it's really a, rec- it's a recommendation for me because I did not know it. <laughs> it's kind of like a eureka, idiotic eureka moment, yeah. which is that – if you buy bread at the farmer's market or something that doesn't have a lot of preservatives in it, for me, it always gets hard. But recently, I discovered that you can put it in the microwave, mm-hmm. and it'll stay fresh for like four days if you just leave it in the microwave. Inside your microwave. Inside your microwave. I was astonished when I saw it. Two days later, it was just like really delicious, just as it always has been. So, Do you have a scientific FYI, theory about why, would, why, why that would be the case? Something about the vacuum. But I also have to recommend, um, if you're interested in Amelia Earhart, Judith Thurman wrote an article in The New Yorker that I just kind of skimmed through, and she sort of debunks the myth of uh, Amelia Earhart. So, and it's the September 4th, 2009 issue of The uh, New Yorker. It's called Missing Woman. All right. James, what have you got for us? Um, Sublime Raspberries, that place I've mentioned once before, but Mm -hmm. it's a little bit out of the way. Raspberry Knoll Farm is just off Route 6 in North Windham. And even if you're west of the river, it is really worth a trip there. Their, their raspberries are starting now, and they actually run through October. I mean, it's incredible how uh, they, they have dozens of different varieties. And uh, one other thing, too, I just wanted to remind people of uh, some great farmers at the Coventry Market, including Wayne's Organic Garden. Hey, Wayne. Back. I uh, was so pleased. <laughs> Good to see them. He, he might be listening now if he's out in the field, if he's not out in the fields. Um, I, I, I thought you might. Uh, so, so I want to, I've in the past on other shows, endorsed the movie Norman, which you have coming in at Sydney Studio. Oh, right yes, now. starting today. Yeah. yeah, and I really like this movie. It's, it is Good Richard movie. Gere, Playing a Shlemiel, which you just don't see. There's kind of an odd thing that's done with casting here, too, because all of the uh, – it, it takes place within the Jewish community of both Israel and the U.S. All the U.S. Jewish characters are played by Gentiles. It's like Michael Sheen and, <laughs> and Richard Gere and people like that. But they're all really terrific. They all do a great job. And then all the Israeli characters are played by Israeli actors, including this fabulous guy who plays a young Israeli prime minister. And it is another earbuds movie, too. Uh, Richard Gere has these white uh, – iPhone earbuds in for most of the movie, just like Ansel Elgort or whatever his name is in Baby Driver. But I would, I would recommend that. That's at your movie theater. But well, um, it's running to starting tonight for through next Wednesday. It's, it's okay. a. I think it's a really good movie. Go see it. All right. Well, kind of in the vein of what uh, what you endorsed there, James, uh, I'm endorsing just farmers markets in general, like Connecticut is filled with them and uh, also local wineries and breweries. So just shopping local. My goal this summer is to try to kind of like live off the local land and really commit to solely farmers market shopping for my primary source and local wine and beer and everything. So that, and um, also uh, if you're going out to a good dinner, a good seafood dinner, Fresh Salt in Old Saybrook is my favorite summer place. They're just like right on the water and uh, they have this like this spicy calamari that I like can't get enough of. I actually almost ordered a second order (laughs) of it because I had just like kind of possessed it from the rest of the table <laughs> um it, it is it's a really good uh nice spot for for good summer eating you were cut off 
No more calamari. No more calamari for me. So as long as we're doing farmer's markets, the people who do the West Hartford Farmer's Market on LaSalle Road have asked me to say something about this because they feel like they were one of the first ones around here and now they feel like people have forgotten them. So they're there on Saturday (laughs) mornings from I think probably about 9 to 1, something along those Mm -hmm. lines. And uh, there are some good farmers. But yeah, they're all over the place. The New Haven Farmer's Market is fabulous. I mean, uh, the one down on Worcester Square, uh, they're all over the state. They're great. So um, I already did Norman. Um, So I was thinking about the intro that we did which was Amelia Earhart more or less on the Jimmy Fallon show having to play stupid party games and I'm not a big fan of Jimmy Fallon or the stupid party games. However, there's always an exception that proves the rule, right? So if you just need to be cheered up very quickly, um, just go on YouTube and and summon up the uh, Emma Stone lip sync battle. (laughs) And, And it's about seven minutes long, but the good news is you can fast forward for, through the Jimmy Fallon part, or you can just watch a little bit of Jimmy Fallon together. So it's the two of them battling at lip sync, which you wouldn't think would be even something worth battling over. Uh, but Emma Stone's really good. You can sort of fi- realize, you can see why she is the actress that she is with that big, huge, expressive face and those popping eyes and stuff like that. She really uses it to her advantage. And she does two, she lip syncs to two very uh, different songs. I think I won't say which ones they are so that you can have the fun of it. So you can just get cheered up really fast watching Emma Stone lip sync. Um, and then I'm not an Almodovar person, but I watched last night Julieta, and, and, uh, which is the newest one. And, and, and I'll say this. Maybe it's because I'm not an Almodovar person. I, there's another person in the house, a mysterious other person in the house who is an Almodovar person. And so I was thinking, OK, I'll watch 20 minutes of this and then I'll go upstairs and watch the Red Sox. Um, and then I watch the whole thing. And uh, maybe that means it's not a good Almodovar movie. But I mean, it, I found the storytelling to be um, especially magnetic. It's maybe a sort of more basic kind of story than he sometimes tells. All of his movies are about families and loss and kind of miss, missing connections. This is very much about that. I thought the acting was just really kind of riveting. So um, so Julieta, I, I wrote, will recommend that. And then I'll do one more just because I have to fill another 35 seconds. Um, uh, here's another movie that I sat down watched, thinking I was going to watch 20 minutes of. I re- started. I sat down to rewatch 20 minutes of Castaway, and all I really wanted to do was watch the plane crash. <laughs> speaking, <laughs> speaking of speaking of Amelia Earhart, all I wanted to do was watch the plane crash, and I was thinking this is kind of a dumb movie. You know, it's not that good, and. Like, you know, he has this relationship with a volleyball. And, and I watched the whole thing and, <laughs> and then thought about it the whole next day. So uh, if you're thinking about whether Castaway is worth a second trip, yeah. take it from me. Uh, you'll have a good time. And you'll appreciate all the comforts of home. All right. Thanks very much to uh, Irene Papoulis, uh, James Hanley, and Carolyn Payne. Thanks to all the people behind the glass doing all the work today. And uh, we'll be back on Monday with The Scramble. Your daughter's so cute. What's her name? Uh, Amelia. Oh, after Amelia Earhart? Yeah, I really hope that she grows up one day to fly off and go missing. She's kind of a jerk.